0: Uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to be out here this morning and to uh, be worshiping with you. Uh, we're glad to have uh, a lot of our, our members here. It's always good to see all of you, um, and also a few visitors uh, from uh, around the area. Um, we're glad to have you in town with us, and I hope that you'll uh, come back to visit us again soon. So, um, the uh, the lesson this morning, I, I hope, will be something that is uh, something that's easy for you to take something away from uh, very, very quickly. Um, this, is, ho- this is meant to be a very practical lesson that will hopefully uh, inspire some thought and inspire some, uh, some ways that we can uh, grow and help each other uh, with these things going forward. Um, so as many of you know, I, uh, I drive for Lyft uh, occasionally, um, and let me tell you, the streets of Atlanta are a, a really uh, interesting place to be sometimes as a, uh, as a 22-year-old uh, driving a bunch of crazy people around. Um, just the other night, I was telling Blake about this. This morning, there was a um, there was a bike ride race going through the middle of Atlanta. Um, however, it was it was midnight, um, so I was trying to get over from the west side of town to the east side of town, and I ended up having to cancel like three or four rides. It was just it was a really uh, it was a really crazy time. But um, in my in my time driving Lyft, um, I you know you talk to a lot of different people. You get to interact with some really uh, interesting folks along the way. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a friendly guy. You know, I, so I tend to try to make conversation with whoever's in the car. Um, and one of the questions that I, that I always ask, just kind of as a starter, because you do get some people sometimes who do not want to talk to you, so I don't want to, like, force someone to talk to me. Um, but one of the questions I typically ask when someone gets in the car is just like, hey, like, you know, what do you do here in Atlanta? Because um, you never know, like, if someone's in school or if they're working or, you know, whatever, you know, place in life they may be in. Um, and so I tend to ask what do you do? Um, and you get answers that you know you would expect. You know, someone talks about, oh, you know, I'm here for school, or oh, I have a I have a career here, or oh, my, my family lives here in Atlanta. Uh, I have lived here my whole life. I just moved here. Um, and all these all these answers to the questions that uh, that I that I tend to ask and, and the answers that people give um, tend to tend to focus around what that person's identity is. When you ask someone a question like that, a general question of uh, you know what do you do or or even just who are you someone 's going to talk about the most important things in their life, and a lot of times I think for the people <clears throat> for people in the world um, and, and for us too as well, those most important things tend to tend to center around what your career is what where you went to school or where you 're going to school currently um, that could, it could center around uh, your uh, this the sports team that you, that you enjoy the most. I mean, um, if someone asked me what I spend a lot of my free time doing, I would probably say watching the Atlanta Braves, um, because that's what I spend a lot of my, my time doing. Um, and, and you know, you think about uh, you think about other events or, or things that happen in this city. Um, we have a lot of uh, a lot of events around uh, having pride for. Uh, your sexuality, or having pride for uh, this or that, and, and those are things that people identify with. Those, those are things that people find their identity with. Um, and I think that I think we can see that uh, we can see some of the flaws in that, obviously, in finding identity in these worldly things. Um, but I think that that's also true even of people of the church sometimes. Um, Like I said, we all tend to identify with something or another in in the world, and that's not a bad thing always. Um, Obviously, if you have a certain uh, career or a certain uh, school that you're going to, that's a big part of your life, and that's something that takes up a big part of of your identity. But even among the church, um, how do we identify ourselves um, as as disciples? Do we identify with a certain religious group? Do we say that we are um, part of a certain sect or a certain type of church or a certain denomination, um, is that where we find our identity as Christians? Is our identity tied up in the works that we do, in the, you know, maybe the uh, the giving that we do or the, the time that we spend giving to charity or uh, volunteering? Um, is our identity tied up in, in those good works? Um, is our identity tied up in just religion in general? Um, are we Do we just consider ourselves to be a religious, deep-thinking, philosophical person and find Uh, identity in that Um, I think that we can that it's not it's not hard to see that this is not the that's not the pattern for identity that we see given in the New Testament and so in the lesson today what I really want us to try to focus on is what is uh, what did the Christians specifically in the book of Acts how did they find their identity what did they find their identity and how did they define themselves And if you will turn over with me to Acts chapter eleven, we're going to look at a specific example from uh, the Christians in Acts eleven. There's uh, there's uh, the the church there in uh, in Antioch in Acts chapter uh, eleven gives a really good example of how Christians. Well, I I wasn't. I was trying to not say Christians, but um, how the believers in the Book of Acts defined themselves. Look there in verse uh, in verse twenty six with me. Uh, it says, <clears throat> when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I think that uh, you know, throughout the book of Acts, as we as we read about the the believers, they they're, they go by many different names. Uh, I think the most common description for the for the disciples in the book of Acts is probably believers. Um, that's that's most the word that's most commonly associated with the the people that we read about in Acts. You see other other terms like disciples or or followers of the way. Um, There are all these different ways of referring to people who follow Jesus. But I think that one of the most interesting ones is here in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, where it says that this was the first time that believers were called Christians, was in Antioch. Um, Just a brief side note, um, this is kind of a a cool lesson or a cool uh, verse for me personally, because this verse right here is the origin of my family name, Christian. Um, I don't think many people can say that their, their family name originated from uh, somewhere in the text. But this is, as far as we know, this is the first time that in recorded history that someone used the word Christian. Um, and it, it's, it, it, was a, it was a term that was supposed to describe these believers um, here in Antioch. Um, and, you know, the origins of this, of this name aren't exactly clear. Um, it's it's not clear whether this was something that the Christians themselves decided to call themselves, or whether this was something that came from outsiders. Um, it, you know, it, it's I, I would think to myself that it's probably likely that this name came from outsiders. I don't think that the, the believers got together and were just like, well, we're gonna we're gonna call ourselves Christians because that just sounds like the most uh, you know acceptable term. It sounds like it's such an ordinary word to us today. But I really think um, this, in a lot of ways, probably would have been a, uh, a somewhat, maybe even derogatory term in the, uh, in the New Testament times. The only other two times that this word is used in the Bible are later in the book of Acts, in chapter 26, where Agrippa says, you would convince me to become a Christian, and then later in, uh, in First Peter, where Peter says, um, if anyone reviles you as a Christian, both of those things, not, not necessarily derogatory, but are, are coming from the point of view of outsiders. This is how outsiders would have looked at these believers. This is, this is a, a term that outsiders would have associated with this group of believers. And um, I think that it's easy to see that this meant that these outsiders could see that there was something different about this group of believers. This wasn't just... You know, these people were, were kind of Jews, but then some of them weren't. They, they kind of followed some of the Jewish customs and traditions, but, you know, they didn't, they didn't meet on the Sabbath. They met on the first day of the week. There was a lot of uh, differences there. And so they were, they were different. And what made them different was the fact that they were following Christ. That's literally what Christian means. It means a follower of Christ or a follower of the Messiah, a follower of the Anointed One. And that's what defined these people to the people in their community, to those who were outside of the the body of belief, was the fact that they were defined by Christ. They were defined by following the Messiah. So what what exactly made these people um, in in their community recognize them as Christians, as followers of Christ? Um, I think that today we'll see that the most crucial thing was their imitation of Christ himself. Um, And I I really want us to try to to focus on that this morning, and hopefully we'll bring that out as we go through and look at um, this church at Antioch. Um, But let's look and see what this practically looked like for the disciples uh, in Antioch. Um, I'm going to read verses uh, 19 through 30, and as we're reading this, just try to pay attention to um, what was different and what stood out about this group of believers that would have made outsiders look in and say, those people are following Christ, Uh, I'm going to read Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, coming on, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord is with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So there's three things that I want to bring out from this text today that I think stand out about these, uh, these Christians here in Antioch. Um, the first thing is that these Christians lived counterculturally. Um, if you look there at the beginning of this text, um, the first thing that these believers do when they come to Antioch is that they went to the Greeks preaching the Lord Jesus. And it says that they were, they were met with great success. The hand of the Lord was with them. Um, this would have been different on so many levels. Um, in the story of Acts, we're kind of at the very beginning of the Gentiles beginning to be grafted into the Lord's body. Um, we've just had in Acts chapter 10, the conversion of Cornelius, um, and he's the, the first Gentile to be brought into and, and really have uh, God's spirit put upon him and say, I want the Gentiles as part of my body. I want to. This is not just for the Jews. This is going to be spread to the Gentiles as well. Um, but I think we can see not just in this chapter, but throughout you know, the next couple of chapters in Acts as well. This wasn't something that was just immediately taken on to by the church. Um, there were still going to be a lot of kind of debates and, and things that the church had to work out as they tried to graft these these Gentiles into the body but those the, the Christians who are here in Antioch their first step is to go to the Greeks they go to the Greeks and they're met with uh, with great success. Um, this would have been different on on a lot of levels. Um, I think you know if you think about just human culture in general um, you you and I tend to to go to to spend time with people that we are are alike in some way. Um, that's just kind of natural uh, human instinct, is to to gravitate towards people that you have something in common with, or that you are comfortable with, or that you have you know some kind of similarities to. To these Jews here, there would have been very few similarities to these Gentiles, at least at least in their minds. Um, but that didn't matter. Um, that didn't matter to them. They didn't. They didn't. They weren't concerned with the fact that. It was against natural human instinct to go to these people. This also would have been against their Jewish culture in general. Um, Like like I mentioned before, there's this separation between Jews and Gentiles that had existed for a long time. This wasn't just something uh, recent. This had been uh, in place for quite some time. Um, And so they would have had to go against their own Jewish culture in some way. But not only that, I think there was also probably going to be some pushback even from the members of the church itself. If you look there in verse, uh, in verse 20, uh, 22 or verse 20, it says there were some of them who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists or to the Greeks also. Um, I'm not saying that there was <clears throat> opposition from the other people who were there in Antioch and that you know, some wanted to go to the, the Greeks and some didn't, but it says that only some went. And so I think that maybe right off the bat, this wasn't something that was easily or readily accepted by everyone there in the church in Antioch. This would have been something that would have been hard for people to, um, to really wrap their minds around and really come to terms with. But I think that this shows that the believers weren't guided by human culture or human perspectives or the traditions of their, their own subculture or even the traditions and the, the practices of the church in and of that day. They knew that they knew that Jesus had given a command that said, go make disciples of all nations. And that after Cornelius had been converted, that that door was now open to the Gentiles. And it was going to be necessary for them to leave their comfort zone, to leave their their comfortable culture where they felt like they fitted in and leave that and break free to go to these people who needed to hear the gospel. Um, but, you know, these disciples weren't just breaking free of this just for change's sake. They weren't just saying, oh, we're going we're gonna, to you know, go start our, our own church and do things differently and change everything. They were doing this because they were following the example of Christ who came before them. Uh, turn over to John chapter 15 with me. We're going to look at a couple of passages from John today that uh, exemplify how Christ uh, was really the ultimate example of these, these uh, characteristics that we see in the church in Antioch. In John chapter 15, I'm going to read verses 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus understood that his followers were not going to fit into the world, and they weren't supposed to. Um, Jesus is is trying to to tell the disciples here and really give them a, a preview of what is going to come in their service to him and say, you're going to be hated by the world. You're going to, to be different, to be set apart, to not do things the way that the world does. You're going to be countercultural. You're going to go against the, the, the normal way of doing things in your day, in your day and age. Um, and Jesus understood that. He understood that he was creating a movement that, that his followers were going to have to, uh, to be set apart and to, to be in direct, stark contrast and opposition to what the world was doing. But what was, the, what was the reason for this persecution or this, this opposition uh, for Jesus' followers? If you look there in verse 21, it says that all these things they will do to you on account of my name. These believers were identified with the name of Jesus. And that was going to cause there to be pushback. There was going to cause there to be opposition. And so I, I'd encourage all of us to, to take a closer look at our own lives. Um, are we truly living counter or are we kind of defined by and integrated into our culture? Whatever that looks like. Um, I'm not saying that's American culture. That could be the culture at your job or the culture at your school or the culture at, uh, in your family. Are you defined by that culture or are you defined by Jesus? Are you defined by your relationship with Christ? Um, you know, and if, if we are truly defined by the name of Jesus, that's going to that's gonna mean that there should be some pushback. Um, Jesus is promising that here. And this isn't something that's like, a, well, this is going to happen to some Christians, but you, know, you Christians 2,000 years from now, y'all are going to be fine. And you can just be you know, fine to be integrated into your culture, uh, and that won't be a problem. This is something that applies to all Christians. Um, if we truly are living according to the name of Jesus, we should expect there to be some opposition and some pushback if we're going to try to truly live in this countercultural way. Uh, the second thing that I notice here from uh, these Christians in Antioch is that they practiced mutual encouragement. If you go back to Acts chapter 11, um, really the, the primary character in, in this story, uh, we haven't really gotten to the part of Acts where, where Saul or, or Paul, as he becomes eventually, becomes the primary character. At this point, Barnabas is kind of the man. Um, Barnabas is really the one who comes to the church in Antioch. He's sent there by the church in Jerusalem uh, to encourage the brethren. And I think it's really interesting to note what happens when Barnabas comes to the church here in Antioch. It says in verse 23 that when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord of the steadfast purpose. Uh, this, wasn't, uh, this was a, a mutual encouragement. Barnabas comes to Antioch with the purpose of encouraging the brethren there. But immediately, as soon as he gets there, he is uplifted himself. It says that he was made glad. Um, So what is is meant by this encouragement or this exhortation here? Um, This is actually the same word that is used in uh, John when Jesus tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit was going to come alongside them. He was going to help. He was going to be a a helper or an encouragement. And so this this encouragement is not supposed to be the idea of one person dragging the other person along or one person just, you know, bringing the other person along with them to, to the, the goal. This is a, a, a walking alongside, a, a teamwork, um, a mutual uh, uplifting and a mutual walking towards the same goal uh, together. And so how did the, how did Barnabas and these Christians encourage each other? Um, I think that there's, there's several things here that are important to note about how this encouragement uh, happened in the church in Antioch and how Barnabas was able to... Um, to encourage the brethren and, uh, and Saul as well. First of all, um, like I noted before, <clears throat> I think that it's important to be able to receive encouragement and to give encouragement. And really those two things go together. Um, if, if Barnabas came to, to the church in Antioch just looking to to be an encouragement and to, you know, well, what, what can I do? How can I jump in and, and get involved here? Um, he wouldn't have received the blessing himself of being uplifted and encouraged by these brethren. Um, and I think that it's not hard to see that the same is true for us today. Um, the, the times where I feel the most encouraged are the times where I'm, I'm opening myself up to be encouraged by others. And there's, there's got to be a mutual um, uh, relationship there between, between the people that we're trying to encourage. If we are not open to receiving that encouragement ourselves, we're not really going to be able to, to give that encouragement like we need to. Because let's be honest, like <clears throat> for all of us, even, even those of us who are the most uh, servant-hearted and encouraging and uh, others-centered, there are going to be times where we need to be uplifted as well. And that's the attitude that is, that is expressed here is, uh, hey, you know, I want to help you because in a little while, I'm going to need that help myself. I want to I be an encouragement to you because I know that coming down the road, I'm going to have a time where I'm going to need that encouragement as well. Um. And it can't just be a one-sided thing. Um, you know, Blake is the, Blake is the, the evangelist here. He's the, he's the minister to our congregation. We need to minister to Blake in the same way that he is ministering to us. And I think we all understand that. Um, and I don't think anyone would accuse us of, of taking advantage of Blake in any way. I mean, maybe so, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but I, think that, I think that it's important for all of us to see how can we encourage our brethren, but how can we also receive that encouragement ourselves? The second thing that I want to note here is that Barnabas was devoted to the Lord. Um, If you look there at the end of verse uh, 23, it says, He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many were added to the Lord. This encouragement that Barnabas gave was focused on the Lord. It was focused on the Lord and being faithful to Him. Um, that has to be the center of our the the center focus of our encouragement that we give. You know, it's not just all about um, how you know uh, telling someone how they, they to solve their problems or telling someone uh, you know hey here's here's the advice I need to give you. If that advice and that encouragement is not pointed back to the Lord, we're just like the rest of the world, and we have we have a source of that advice and encouragement that is so rich and so deep and such a such a blessing and we need to be pointing each other back to this reminding each other to be faithful to the Lord uh, with a steadfast purpose like Barnabas did to the church in Antioch but you know even more than that Barnabas was uh, it says here that Barnabas was considered a good man Um, I think it's really interesting to think about that for a second to think about the fact that he's called good here um, because There's not a lot of places in the the Bible, at least, where people are referred to as good. Um, In the Gospels, a man comes to Jesus and says, Oh, teacher, you are good. And Jesus stops him and says, Wait, don't call me good, for only God is good. I'm not saying that Barnabas is like a god or or anything like that. But Barnabas was a godly man, and he's referred to as good here. Um, But you know what? This, This doesn't mean that he was just happy all the time. This doesn't mean that he was just... Smiling and cheerful all the time, and actually, if we look in several other places in Acts, we see that that 's not always the case. Um, you think about just a few chapters down the road from this. Barnabas and, and Saul are going to have a pretty stark disagreement about how the the gospel needs to be spread, where they need to go, and who needs to go with them, and how they can how they can help people the best um, but because Barnabas was a good man, because Barnabas was uh, wanting to encourage people to be steadfast in their service to the Lord, he doesn't let that prevent him from continuing to carry on his work. Um, I think it, I think it's important for us to see that we can't encourage others. We can't truly encourage others and be real Christians, be real followers of Christ, unless we're devoted to that same mission that Barnabas had, the same mission of, uh, of going out and, and spreading the gospel and going out and telling others about the good news of, uh, of the kingdom and, and equipping others to do that. That's a huge part of, of the encouragement that Barnabas is doing here is equipping those around him to then go out and to do that work. The third thing that I see here about their encouragement is that Barnabas was a worker. I, I think that, you know, when you see, uh, Barnabas is not like a, a, a huge major character throughout the book of Acts. Um, but whenever you see Barnabas come up, Man, Barnabas is getting, to, getting busy. I mean, he's, he's doing stuff. He's really uh, devoted to the work of the Lord. He was diligent. And, and you can see the results here because it says that many were added to the church, um, obviously through the, the help of the Lord. But, but that had to come through the work of Barnabas. But not only was he diligent in his work, but he was also diligent in including others in his work. Um, if you look here in at the end of uh, towards the end of this section, it says that Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, brought him to Antioch, and they were with the Christians there and encouraging the brethren. You know, it would have been really easy for Barnabas to say, "Hey, I'm the I'm now the top dog here in Antioch. I'm the you know they sent me from Jerusalem. I'm this big shot. Um, this is my church. You know, this is this is going to be my zone that I have uh, you know reign over or whatever." That's not what he says. He says, you know what? I really think that someone who could help us is Saul, this guy that I met back in Jerusalem who used to be, you know, killing Jews a while back, I think, or killing Christians a while back. I think that he would be a helpful person to have here in the work. Um, and so he gets Saul and goes and brings him to the work here. So I think it's important for us to see that real Christians not only encourage others, but bring others alongside them in the work that they are doing. Um, that's what encouragement looks like. It's not, um, it's not always just, just uh, offering someone a comforting hand in a time of trouble. Sometimes it's saying, hey, I have this work that I'm doing. Will you come and do it with me? I could really use your help. Um, I think that that's, a, that's, that's been a powerful thing in my life is the people that have said, hey, I'm doing this. Come alongside and, and do it with me or come alongside and, and, let, and, and help me uh, in, this, in this task or in this, uh, in this work that I'm doing. Um, that's, what, that's what encouragement looks like. And that's what Barnabas is, uh, is doing here for the Christians in Antioch and for, for Saul. Um, but Barnabas and the disciples in Antioch didn't just practice this encouragement because it was a nice thing to do. Um, or because it was, you know, the, the pleasant way of living. Um, they were following a standard that was set by Christ. Um, I think that the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about this is Jesus' relationship with his disciples. Um, you think about you know Jesus was for for three years Jesus was surrounded by this ragtag bunch of fishermen, tax collectors, uh, all these all these different types of, of men who really didn't didn't really bring a lot to the table of their own accord. Um, we end up seeing the results of that after they uh, you know after the church gets established. But when Jesus was with his disciples, there wasn't a lot for him to really gain from them. Um, but turn back over to John chapter thirteen, and I want to read. About the example that Jesus set for his followers and what they were, um, how they were supposed to, how he treated them, and how, how he then wanted him, how he treated them, and then how he wanted them to treat each other. Uh, read with me in verses twelve through seventeen. It says when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, "Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am." If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you who do them. The Christians in Antioch were trying to imitate this same example that we read about in John chapter 13. Serving each other, mutually encouraging each other, and uplifting each other doing for others as you would have them do unto you. And really following the example of Jesus, the example that Jesus said of serving people who didn't always deserve to be served, people that were not um, his equals, that were that were well below him. Jesus was far superior to these people. But that didn't stop him from serving them. That didn't stop him from lifting them up and trying to encourage them. And so uh, to think about for us here, um, specifically for the group here, um, I think that this congregation needs people to step up to the plate and practice this kind of encouragement. Um, I know that I need to step up more in this way. I need to, number one, be more willing to receive that encouragement, to open myself up and talk about the hard things that happen in my life or the, the struggles that I have or the, the difficulties of, of faith that sometimes come up. But then also to be diligent about seeking to encourage others as well. Um, if we, if we don't do that, this body is not going to be built up in the way that the Lord wants. And really the ultimate goal of that is not just so that we can check a box and say, okay, well, I encouraged my brethren. I, I did that thing. It's to imitate Christ. If we claim to be Christians, if we claim to be people who are following the Messiah, this is what that looks like. This is what that looks like is, is encouraging each other in a, in a mutual sense and building each other up towards the common goal of pursuing the work of the kingdom together. And you know, for those who who are here who might not be part of this group, my encouragement to you is find a group. This this is one of the main purposes of a church is having a place where you can have mutual encouragement with your brethren. Um, I know that for myself, that's been one of the most powerful things about being here as a part of this group is to see that and to see that in action. Um, And even if we have room for improvement in that, I think that being a part of a local body is is the, the way of accomplishing that, is the way of uh, being able to encourage uh, those who are around you and to be encouraged as well. The third thing that I want to point out from these Christians here in Antioch is that they showed radical love. Um, you, might, you might question this a little bit because the word love is actually not at all contained in this passage. Um, it doesn't talk about uh, the love that they had for each other or the, uh, the desire that they had to, to love each other. But I think that actually this may be the most obvious point of uh, any of the points that we've talked about from uh, the church in Antioch. Um, the church in Antioch was, was defined by the radical love that they showed to those who were around them. Uh, think about, like we already talked about, think about them reaching out to the Gentiles. No one forced them to go to these people. They could have very well come to Antioch and said, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to go to the Jews because that is what is comfortable for us. That's what, you know, that's our culture. Those are the people that we fit in with. But no, they said, these are people that need the gospel. And these are people that God wants to be a part of his kingdom. And so they recognized that. They recognized that there was a need for Jesus that these people had. And they showed them love uh, by, by preaching them the gospel. You know, I think a lot of times... For me, the, the reason that I am not as diligent about spreading the gospel is because I don't love people like I should. Um, I think that, I think that if, I, if I truly loved people with the love that Jesus loved us, I'd be much more diligent about spreading the gospel. I'd be much more diligent about sharing with others about, um, about our Lord and Savior and, and making that part of my, uh, my daily life. I think another thing that demonstrates the love of these brethren here is the forgiveness that they demonstrate to Saul and maybe to others who were opposed to them in their community. You know, I think that we sometimes just gloss over the fact that um, it probably still would have been very difficult for a lot of believers to accept Saul, especially in these earlier days uh, of his Christian life. You know, it was only two chapters ago that Saul was, uh, was going around killing Christians and putting them in prison. Um, and obviously he had turned away from that and um, had, had joined the church and was uh, diligently serving. But I'm sure there was still some kind of hesitation or still some kind of uh, pullback on the part of maybe some of the disciples uh, because of that. But you don't see that at all here. You don't see that at all. It says that Saul came and they met with the church and taught a great many people. Paul, uh, Saul was able to come into this church and not be inhibited by his past, not be inhibited by uh, the mistakes that he had made in the past, because this group was defined by showing love to everyone, um, even to people who uh, had done terrible things like, like Saul had done, and who had really been uh, violently opposed to the mission. So I think that you know, being ruled by love, showing this kind of radical love means that we can't let people's past impact their current ability to serve in the kingdom. And I don't know what that looks like for each of us. That's different because each of us have different things that are, are harder or easier to, to, to get over with people. Um, but we need, to, we need to be diligent about this. We can't let uh, people's past or people's circumstances dictate whether or not they uh, are, are going to be able to serve alongside us in the kingdom. The last thing that I, that I want to point out here about the love that these brethren showed... Was uh, at the end of this section where it talks about the relief that they sent to the church in uh, Judea. You know, it says here that the the famine that the um, that occurred was not going to just be in Judea. This was going to be a famine that happened all over the world. And so I don't know. Uh, I don't know for sure if this was something that would have affected the church in Antioch, or maybe the church in Antioch, you know, had a bunch of uh, supplies built up and they were they had a surplus or whatever. But I can imagine that there would have been some sacrifice required to send the aid and to send the the things that they sent to the church there in Judea, um, to their brethren in Judea. And not only to mention that, but um, as we're going to see in, in Acts chapter 15, um, the the believers there uh, in in Judea might not have been the most pro pro-gen- uh, pro Gentile in the world. Um, there was still a lot of sentiment among. The believers in Jerusalem specifically of we're not really sure if the Gentiles can be fully accepted. Do they need to be circumcised? There are all these questions still kind of going on. But none of that prevented the church in Antioch from helping their brethren. Um, Despite the the potential uh, detriment to themselves, despite the, the possibility of even just a lack of connection that they had with the group there in Judea, they exhibited radical love by sending this relief, by sending aid to their brethren uh, in Judea that they likely probably would have have never met before and so I think that Christian is this shows that Christians love other Christians and are willing to make sacrifices on their behalf um, I think that for uh, for me this is really important to think about because you know this body that we have here these are the people that that we are supposed to love these are the people that we are supposed to to um, have in our hearts and to to show this kind of, of radical love to um, and sometimes that's going to require sacrifice on our part. Um, sometimes that's not going to be the easiest thing to do. Um, but that's what, is, that's what the, the standard is here. And that's what we see the believers here in, uh, in Antioch doing. And so I'll ask each of you to consider, do you love your brethren? Do you love those who you interact with on a daily basis like you should? Are you willing to, to make sacrifices to, and put others first, even when it might hurt or be uncomfortable? Um, Look back at at, uh, John chapter 13 again with me quickly here. In John chapter 13, in verse 35, it says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus knew that this was what was going to define his followers, was their love for each other, and the love that they would show to people in the world. And this is an attitude that comes from From Christ Himself. And so as we're seeking to to emulate Christ, this is a a key component of that is the love that we show to one another. And this is another this is just another example of something that is going to stand out to the world. Jesus literally says that here in John thirteen, that this is how they will this is how the world is going to know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, if you show the kind of radical love that the disciples show in uh, in John in Acts chapter eleven. So how do, we, how do we bring all this together? How do, we, how do we accomplish this vision for us? This vision that we have to be able to mold our identity into something, uh, something greater. Something, um, something that's not ourselves, but that is tied up into Christ. Um, I, first of all, I think it's good to know that this is not an overnight thing. Um, per, a, attaining to the identity of Christ and becoming more like Christ is not something that happens overnight. And it's, really not, it's no, really not a process that ever stops or is ever over. This is a continual thing. But turn over to Colossians chapter 3 with me. Colossians chapter 3, and I want to read verses uh, 1 through 12 as a way of showing just some practical things that I think you and I can do that will help us uh, become more like Christ, that will help us as we, as we strive to, um, to put our identity into Christ. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 12. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator." Here, there is not Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. I think that the, the first step to, to attain into this identity of Christ is we have to put off the earthly things. Or, or put to death, really, what it says here. Put to death what is earthly within you. And, we, and you, you can go on to list uh, all these things that are talked about in verses uh, five through nine, um, but these are all things that we have to put out of our lives. We cannot attain to the identity of Christ. We can't truly call ourselves followers of Christ if these things are still part of our lives. These are things that have to be put out, put to death, um, if we're going to to truly uh, attain to this new self that is talked about. Um, but not only that, it's not just not just putting away those 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 earthly things, putting away these sinful things that separate us from Christ but it is seeking the things that are above seeking the things of Christ um, back, in, back in verse 1 it says that we are to seek the things that are above where Christ is um, you know w- when I think about uh, our walk as Christians our goal needs to be our, our vision needs to be centered on being where Christ is having the, the attitude and the mindset that Christ had he has to be our standard he has to be the standard that we evaluate our actions and our thoughts by he has to be the thing that we make decisions based on and and the way that we that we truly try to live our lives um, if we're going to truly be christians if we're going to call ourselves christians our identity has to be tied up in and centered on christ and this is i think it's not hard to see that this is the attitude that the christians at antioch had they were, they were committed and devoted to serving Christ and to following the example that Christ had set. And I think that this is, this is the, the ultimate goal of what this passage is talking about. When you read the end of the passage in verses 10 and 11, um, it says that we are to put on the new self, which was renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Um, this isn't just a renewal into a better form of, uh, of what we are currently. This isn't just some uh, recreation of ourselves to become a better man. Um, That will happen, obviously. But the goal of this is to be renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator, after the image of Christ. Um, And he goes on to list that there's neither going to be Jew nor Greek anymore. You know, we talked about the Christians in Antioch being countercultural. That would have been so strange to them, that there would be this this lack of difference between Jews and Greeks. Um, There's no longer going to be circumcised and uncircumcised. Um, they're, they're not defined by these uh, external markings of religion or these, uh, these external things that would have defined people uh, in those days. Um, no more barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. These, these social things are not going to be what defines people anymore. But Christ is all and in all. Christ is what must define us. Christ is where we need to find our identity, where we find um, what we truly are and what we truly mean. And so my question for you this morning is, um, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Are you, do you truly find your identity in Christ? Because that's what being a Christian means. Um, and if so, are you, are you living according to Christ? And are you seeking to imitate him? Um, that's, what, that's what this is all about. Is, it's not just saying, I'm a Christian, and then you know, going on your merry way. This requires a, a change of heart, a change of mindset, and a continual process of doing what's talked about here in Colossians chapter 3 of moving from uh, putting away the things that are uh, earthly within you and seeking the things of Christ. Um, if we truly claim to be Christians, I think that we need to try to aspire to the example that we see from our, our brethren in Antioch. Um, live counterculturally. Don't be, don't be defined by the culture that you're surrounded by. Be defined by Christ. Practice mutual encouragement. Uplift those who are around you and, and seek that for yourself as well. And be diligent in working to do that. And lastly, practice radical love. Um, practice a love that is, uh, is greater than uh, anything we have ever seen before. Because that, all, the, all these things, the, the counterculturalism, the encouragement, the love, these are things that are, are from Christ. These are things that we see from Christ, an example that we have to follow from Christ. Um, and so I, I would just ask all of us to think about that. Is our identity truly in Christ? Is who we believe that we are, when you, when you get into the Uber after this, and, you, and someone asks you who you are, or what do you do? Is the defining thing about your life Christ, or is it something else? Um, and consider that for yourself. And, you know, maybe there are some here today who um, who don't have this relationship with Christ. And who therefore can't even start to, to say that, they, that they've even started on this path that we see here in Colossians chapter 3. Of, of putting to death the things that are earthly and seeking the things that are, that are Christ's. Um, if that's the case, we want to help you with that. Um, because those of us here who claim to be Christians, who identify with Christ, we want that for you. We want you to, be, to have that relationship with Christ that we have. But, but I, think, I think more likely, probably just looking and seeing who's here today, um, I think more likely is that there are, there are people here who, um, who claim to be Christians, who claim to have their identity with Christ. But maybe you're not living that way. Maybe you're not truly seeking the things of Christ. Maybe you're, you, you are not living a life that is defined by your relationship with Christ. No matter what the case is, I hope that you'll you'll take you'll leave today and think about these things. But if there's any way that we can help you this morning, I hope that you'll talk to someone afterwards, um, or just find whatever opportunity there, there are to be encouraged. We want to help you uh, find how you can how you can be uh, one with Christ, how you can have this relationship with Christ. If there's any way we can help you now, please come as we stand and sing. <coughs>